out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, if only, who knows. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling show. As always, we love a special guest. And this week, it is going to be the turn of John Parrish. English musician, songwriter, composer and record producer. Indeed, that and much, much more. So I've got that interview that I'll play in a bit. But I think to get the party rolling, I think we should play some music. Indeed, we should. This is a um, track he did with PJ Harvey titled Black Hearted Love. You will love it. And then the chat. This is David and this is John Parrish.
And that is Blackhearted Love featuring PJ Harvey. That came from the album A Woman, A Man Walked By. Hello, this is David Esau. This is the C86 Show. This week's special guest is going to be John Parrish. The, uh, well, he's done everything in music, really. And it was really um, when I interviewed the Sidleys. Yes, that famous indie band from the 80s, where I suddenly thought I must get an interview with John because... Um, if you have produced the Sidleys, then frankly, where do you go from there? So um, this is the interview, and this is where I, um, I just introduced myself and had been talking about, yes, that famous recording with that fantastic band from the 80s, and then sort of talked about the, yes, the indie world, which was kind of from, well, I've put it down from 83 to 87, which is basically the years of the Smiths, as I often say and repeat myself, and John was there right at the very beginning, that post-punk period, and this was his reply. John, take it away. That, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I started, I mean, not, not, not producing, but I started um, ma- making record. My first first band was a band called Thieves Like Us, which was a sort of a, a new wave, new wave band. I, I, I was the drummer. Uh, but, but playing in that band, I, I did, that's kind of where I started picking up an interest in, um, in, in how record sounded in the studio, because um, you, know, you know when we'd, you know th- these were the days before people had their own studio, so you had you had to have some kind of a record deal in order to go into a studio. So it was quite a rare thing, and um, the first time we went into a studio, so you know everybody else kind of put down their parts and then buggered off to the pub. I thought I think I'm going to hang around and see, you know, see what goes on in the control room because it looked interesting to me, and so I, I stuck around and started making suggestions and. Um, and, and started to sort of build a bit of a rapport with the producer who sort of, you know, helped, helped me a lot, really. And um, uh, and I, I think that was the, you know, that was the thing that sort of kicked off my interest in producing. But it wasn't until the Chesterfields about five or six years later that I actually was asked, you know, to, to come in and, and produce something. Yes. So, um, yes, that was a bit of a jump because you because after the Thieves Like Us, you you formed another indie band, which again, that became you record you actually released three albums, which was quite extraordinary in that time. Yeah, yes. Well, well, we do. They, they it was actually the first one came out t- towards the end of your period, actually. So we, we were we for, formed Automatic Lamini in sort of 80 end of 82, I think. And we started sort of recording bits and pieces, but we didn't actually put anything out until 86, I believe, was the first the first single. Yes. Yes, because I've got 87. This is a bit of another one of those sweeping statements as the best year of music ever, because there were so many good albums in that year. But um, that that doesn't all, all hold any water either. Actually, I just like making, <laughs> I, I just like having theories. And um, there was this, there was a Smiths yeah. album and Huskadoo and various and The Cure and and bands. I mean, if you look at 87, it, you know, actually the 80s did. I know it's a bit of a trap to sort of go back and reminisce about it, but there did seem to be an amazing amount of work there, because actually. Actually, I, I sort of many years, not that long ago, actually, in the autumn, I did an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead, and um, he was talking about the band. And one of the problems they had a lot of was producing the sound, and they were also a bit dysfunctional at that stage as well. So he tried to produce their third album, which was a disaster because it just didn't work for various reasons. So obviously, again, from being a musician to being a producer, it might sound easy as someone says, oh, look, you can do that and save us lots of money. But I realise there's a lot more to it. 
there, there is, and I totally get why Fast Eddie and and why Motorhead were struggling to put what they were doing on um onto tape. You know, particularly in the eighties, because um it, the it was um the record the sort of the fashion of recording techniques at that time was very much biased against that kind of sort of loud live sort of, sort of band. You know, there's a lot of lot of um, new digital reverbs that just come out, and everybody was very interested in having these sort of enormous snare drum sounds, which which didn't really work if you were playing anything fast and um, far, fast and loud. And I, I struggled with the same th- thing, and I think that's why I did put a lot of work into figuring out into learning how to produce because i i was also very unhappy with how um how automatic lamini sounded whenever we recorded things you know and, and i wasn't the only person that was unhappy you know constantly get people saying well you guys are really good live but, but you know the recordings suck you know what, what's what's the problem and um and, uh, and i didn't know at the beginning you know because we just seemed we were just doing what we thought was right but um the more work I did in the studio, in fact, if, if I could go back and re-record those albums now, I know I could make them sound, you know, a hundred times closer to the to the to the way the band sounded live. Yes. But you know, you, you can't go back. That that was it's done. What's done is done. Yes, though bizarrely, I think um, is it Kevin from My Bloody Valentine's gone back and is trying to re-engineer the that famous album Loveless, <laughs> which which because I kind of heard an interview <laughs> with him. Five years in doing that the first time, didn't it? And it's, it's a wonderful record, but yeah, but uh, yeah, I think yeah. Oh, and actually, I, was, I say you can't go back. And a, and a good good friend of mine, Hal Gell from Giant Sand, has just gone back and re-recorded the entire first album, um, and they did it in three days, and it, and it sounds really good actually. So maybe 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 the, the, I've got, there are always exceptions, aren't there, that prove the rule? Yes, because going, you know, I'm still sticking with the '80s here, because because being a music fan at that period and you know that was kind of you know the period I suppose that I was most obsessed with music was that it was divided between the 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 Trevor Horn sound which was kind of that really produced big sound big kind of I don't know electronic beat and then that indie sound as you know if we have the Smiths as an example which was much more slightly jingly jangly well that's a bit of a poor term but you know what I mean it was that kind of there was there was such a different sort of quality between the mainstream charts and the indie charts and obviously bands like you know like you produced quite a few I think with the brilliant corners and the Chesterfields when John Peel played them you know you couldn't get more further away um, from from that to to that absolutely was it was another world for sure yes and that was obviously something that we and and he obviously liked a lot and and that was kind of the soundtrack to most of the 80s so when you first started working with the Chesterfields did that feel like quite a um a learning curve yeah yeah it was a learning curve because it was the first thing that I that was the first thing that I produced that wasn't my own my own stuff I produced a few things for myself uh, which which is why the Chesterfields asked me to you know, help them with their first EP, uh, <clears throat> but but I, I hadn't. So so I knew kind of how to, you know, I knew I knew a bit about the sort of technicalities of recording, you know, and and um, I mean not, you know, I'm still I'm still wouldn't ever class myself as an engineer, so I know how to, I know how to get sounds, but that's definitely not my strength, you know. So I, I always work with engineers, but producing is more like having a, having an overall idea of how of how the thing should sound at the end, you know, about making decisions about performances and that, and that kind of thing. And so that was the first, 
they were the first band where I had to start making those decisions on behalf of somebody else as opposed to for myself. So that was a steep learning curve because it was, um, you, you know, you have to figure out the politics of the band, you know, how, how uh, you, you have to understand what, what they're looking for. You have to be able to sort of find a way of saying, of telling someone that you, you're not happy with what they're doing without it becoming, um, you know, without them taking it, without it sort of closing them down as a musician you know you, so you have to find ways of encouraging people and um all of that was 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 a big learning curve for me because obviously you don't if you're producing yourself you don't have to tell yourself all those things because you kind of you're understanding it as you go along yes i can see why it's a disaster to have a member of the band doing all that as well as being <laughs> part of the band <laughs> It can be very, very tricky, <laughs> very tricky. <laughs> you have to have very clear boundaries because obviously it's quite interesting that certain there were certain producers, probably still are, you know, and I can think of Steve Albini that people really loved because he gave them that quality and then another guy called, um, I think, Billy Kramer that I, I interviewed and also, you know, he came with a certain, well, if you had those producers you developed a certain sound which was quite interesting so that's obviously why people you know suddenly go I want Steve Albini or I want Tony Visconti or people like that absolutely yeah and and I think so some people it's um yeah they do I mean Steve Albini's got a very strong aesthetic and and you know he would actually I don't know if he's changed but the last time I heard he's he's never referred to himself as a producer he always calls himself an engineer or some or he puts recorded by instead of produced by and he doesn't he his sort of um you know philosophy is that you don't produce as as a producer when he's producing he doesn't interfere with the music in any way what he does is he records as well as possible and I think he records things brilliantly I think he's a fantastic technician um, he records exactly what the band does and, and usually he'll give you two or three takes uh, and, then, and then that's it and, um, uh, and that's your lot whereas um, some producers uh, will, will go in a lot more towards sort of helping you know would, would consider stepping in and changing you know quite radically reshaping the arrangement of a song if they didn't feel it was right and um, to me I feel I'm probably closer to closer to that, really. That sometimes I, I'm I'm totally prepared to do that if I think that there's the germ of a really good idea, but it's not for whatever reason coming across. I'm happy to sort of wade in and make make suggestions, and sometimes that's necessary, and sometimes you know sometimes something's sounding pretty great already, and really the role of a producer is just not to mess it up on on its way from uh, you know from the, the 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 players to the to the tape or to the computer as it is now. Yes, because you must have heard that famous tape by the Trogs. The Trogs, <laughs> yes. The, the, when he keeps talking about sprinkling fairy dust on Absolutely. on it, and um, and that's one of those ones that it, um, obviously has gone down in in sort of history, hasn't it? Really, is so obviously because so when you when you listen to you know the beginnings of a of, of a song, do you, do you already know? Yeah, this has definitely got you know like quality hit or oh dear this isn't the business and they really need to either work on the lyrics or their idea um you know i th i don't think you can i don't think i could ever say oh this is going to be a hit or, or or not because because those things are there's something intangible about that that it that it has to in order for things to be a hit there has to be a lot of things falling into place. It has to, has to come out at exactly the right time, and it has to be. It has to chime with 
if if it ha- ideally it has to be just ahead of what people are looking for but it's the thing that people are looking for but they don't quite know it yet and you, and you you can't know what that is and so 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 i couldn't say something was definitely going to be a hit i can say whether some whether i think something's really good or not for sure and wh- whether i think something's something's working or whether there's um or whether the, whether it needs a little bit of help or whether there's absolutely a fundamental structural problem that's not going to that's going to mean that this song is ultimately, as I say, not going to make the cut on an album or something. Yeah. So you can you can tell those things. You know, it, it, everybody, you know, people say they can tell what's going to be a hit, but I, I, I'm pretty sceptical about that. So. Well, I always know that, um, I think it was Apple computers, are sort of selling us things we don't know we need, but um, we will do. So they're very good at sort of knowing what the zeitgeist is going to be, you know. Yeah, yeah that, 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 that's good. And, so, so, you know, some, you know, obviously some artists you know definitely definitely managed to do that and hit that you know hit a long you know can can hit quite a prolonged period of time where they seem to be you know always just a little bit ahead of the wave which is which is fantastic well it's interesting having sort of become obsessed with music over the decades and realizing that you know that that period as an example in the 80s where there was that indie scene i mean for me you know because i was a bit curious why so many bands kind of finished around that sort of 87 time 88 and and part of it was i think most of them were getting tired and also people that you know as in us the punters were moving on to the other scene which was the dance scene and then there was the seattle grunge scene and there was sonic Mm. the butthole service so it was almost like i always remember a few bands that came along like the Sundays, and I think they did quite well, but I realised that actually the party had almost finished, you know, as they just appeared. And their first album was fantastic, but but it was almost like actually everyone's kind of trying to leave that. And bands like, you know, funny enough, I'd done interviews with the Chesterfields and the Brilliant Corners, and it was that sense of people just feeling tired. And also the, the music business doesn't give you a lot of money either. So there is that sense of still living in poverty after five years. Yeah, I, I I think so because all of those you know with with you know with a couple of exceptions, none of those indie bands were really selling enough records or getting enough people to the con to the concerts to make you know to make a decent living you know and you you can do that for a couple of years in your twenties but you know as you get you know as you get older you pick up responsibilities and just you know it, it's um it, it it becomes very very difficult to to maintain yeah to to maintain it to maintain a career at, at that at that level that financial level yeah because you've got phenomenal kind of experience and the one thing that I, the other thing that i noticed trips people up is the kind of general admin which is to do with publishing and sort of the management side so when you see a lot of these artists especially the younger ones do you often look at and think oh boy you have no idea what's coming next um Yes, but but you know, I try I try not to be you know try not to come across as too much of an old granddad, in those <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, and uh, because you know I, I think people that you know young people are generally you know are probably on the whole a bit more savvy than we were. Well, you know, you know, I grew up in I grew up in Yeovil, you know, a small town where, where you know I didn't know any. I didn't know anybody else that was doing what I was doing when I started, you know, so I had no one to learn with. There was no internet. There was no way of finding things out. So everything took a very long time for me, for me to figure out, you know, and I think now, you know, you you know, a sort of half savvy kid can pick up from, you know, online pretty much, you know, what, what probably took me the first 10 years of my career to learn, you know, they can probably do it. You'd probably do it in a couple of days if they put the time in. And so I think that it's, um, it's like it's slightly different. I think the you know the 
there's still the same old problems that it's very very difficult to make to make a living doing music and and that that, that year but i think that's that's always been the case and that that's not going to change and it's only going to be a few people that are going to be able to to be able to you know to to to, to break through so so it becomes your main source of income which is you know probably what most people want when they when they start off doing it so you know probably you start off doing it because you just like playing you know and, it, and it's fun and it's a laugh but um but uh, but you know we all we all have to live and after a while you you know it's if you're trying to hold down a job or something and, you know, all the pro, you know, we've all been in bands, you know, with, with people that, you know, half the band's got jobs, so you can't do this gig or, you know, it's, you know, you're never quite sure if you can say yes to a gig. Somebody has got to get someone to cover for them at work or whatever. And it's, um, yes. and it just becomes, those things do become exhausting after a while. Very tricky indeed. And obviously you've, you know, you've had an album out this year as well. So, you know, mm. again, you, you know, the creative muse is still there. So, did that again sort of feel like an enjoyable process? Because um, obviously, you know, producing all these people must be great, but then sort of being able to do your own solo stuff must must be just another thing, but must also be incredibly rewarding. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I like to do, um, you know, I, I do think, you know, all the music I do, whether it's producing, sort of playing live with people, doing my own records or, um, or writing film music, I... I, I I, I do kind of have it all under one umbrella. Of ju- it is just music to me, and, and I really enjoy it on every level. And I think that if I was restricted to just one of those outlets, I would probably get bored after a while. So I think I need. I I I have realised over the years. I I obviously need to do all these different things. Um, but yeah, it was great. It was great putting a you know putting my own record out this year and uh you know i've been really really happy with it and i'm lucky to have a, a really good label in thrill jockey that's been very supportive of me over the, over the years and um uh but you know it's i i you know i still have still, right now I'm, I'm i'm booking a tour right at the moment i'm still struggling with the, with the same old things now now it's generally people with um with with kids and how long they can be away from their kids for that so there's so this there's there's always something there's always something that makes it um you know that, that makes it a little bit difficult yes well absolutely i know well there's two things aren't there well there's three probably there's there's kids then your own health and then your parents health that you also have to sort of have an eye on which you never had that sort of even those subjects aren't even in your mind when you're 18 or 20 but now when you get that, that other decade you think oh this is interesting didn't know that was going to be part of my life yeah, I, well, that that is strange. I, mean, I actually lost my, I've lost both my parents. And I lost my mother just, um, just a year ago. So it's, um, but yes, it, it it was a, it is a very, it's you know, it, it it is strange when you move into that that phase of your life, and it, it kind of creeps up on you, doesn't it? You, it seems, you know, I'm tr- I'm trying to remember when when the I, when the realization hit me that I was actually sort of responsible for my parents uh, and, uh, and and responsible for my kids at the same time. And it was, it was like, oh, okay, this is, this is unusual, you know, because having grown up as a sort of a feckless musician, being fairly irresponsible, it was, um, oh, it was a good, it was a good wake up call. Yes. Well, I think with parents, you know, it's just an aside, I think it's when you suddenly realise they seem a little bit more vulnerable and there is a day or even a week, probably a day, just that there's a moment where you think, Oh, you seem a little bit more vulnerable. I feel a bit worried about you going into the city at the moment because, you know, (laughs) you know, you're not quite. You were, you know, there is. It wasn't a gradual. It was like there was definitely a moment I had like that. So that was quite odd. And then also you have those conversations where I was talking to my mum 
uh, this weekend and she was oh yes you know she has keeps all these programs or I think they're programs when you go to other people's funerals and she said yeah I must sort all them out and I thought oh my god yes and of course we used to have like gig tickets and then you get to other <laughs> age you have the programs of people's funerals don't you and she said yeah. yes so I thought yeah. oh yes <laughs> yeah like it's all it's all a bit of a wake up, isn't it? Really, it is. It is indeed. So look, going back to more exciting, or but um, obviously one of the person that's kind of been throughout, you know, the last few decades has been dear old PJ Harvey. So what what is it that um, that I mean? Are you the Tony Visconti to to her David Bowie? Um, <laughs> that's quite a nice way to put it. Um, um, if I, in some ways, yes. Um, I mean, obviously, we've worked together, you know, well, for, for we, we met actually in your favorite year in 1987. And we've been working together on and off ever since, um, which is obviously a very long time now. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so our careers are, you know, in, inextricably linked. And, um, I, and, you know, she's obviously one of my closest and, and dearest friends and absolutely love working with her and I think she's a fantastic artist and I feel very lucky and privileged to have been in a position to be involved in all those sort of great records and uh, and some some amazing shows as well um <clears throat> and also that was it was working with Polly of course on the first album that I co-produced which was To Bring You My Love in 1995 or 94 I think yeah 95 it came out um that was the record that moved me from being a sort of, I, I suppose, you know, a producer that was only known on the sort of the UK indie scene into being a sort of a more internationally recognised producer. And that's when, um, well, that, that's when, you know, I started to get interesting offers from from all, all over the world. And and uh, thankfully, they, they haven't dried up. So, so I've yes. been very fortunate. That has been very good, actually, because I did notice quite a lot of them is... Um, quite a few anyway, the alt country scene that started to blossom um, a few decades ago as well, sort of bands like the 16 Horsepower and also Giant Sand. So obviously there is a sort of, uh, um, I can't work out what I'd refer to the quality, but kind of a rootsy vibe to it anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. You know, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, because obviously I have done a lot of, really quite different records now over the years you know but which you would expect over a career of 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 that length um because it is here more than 30 years since i produced you know the the chesterfields the first chesterfields record um but 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 i think i can and and at first I, i think i was quite um quite reticent or quite resistant to sort of saying that I had I had a sound I felt I, I thought no I don't you know I just do I do what you know I work with different bands and I, I get what you know I try and make what make what they want to hear but I but I have realized that I obviously have very definite aesthetics that I sort of lean towards you know subconsciously and um and those uh, uh, and you you probably can you know I mean you can probably find links between, you know, some of the really quite different records that I've done over the years. And, uh, and, um, and, I, and I think I'm definitely, you know, I like, I do like real natural sort of rootsy sounds, if you like, but then I also like very, very weird electronic stuff and I like to mix them up sometimes. So it's, um, it's not, it's not like I just have a, 
you know, one aesthetic that I sort of that, that has to work with everybody that I that I'm going to be producing. It's um, but there, there there must be there's something in the choices that I make when we're looking at sounds that um, that I do feel is uh, there's a certain consistency in the in the in the decisions that I make, and that that's probably it's probably not making much sense what I'm saying. In my mind, it makes it it does make sense how the records connect. Whether anybody else could hear it or not, I I don't know. That's probably for them to for them to judge. Yes, absolutely. I think when you're doing something, you know, it's it's probably with with a lot with a lot of artists. I mean, once their work is finished, they they kind of almost don't want to listen to it again and kind of want to move away quite quickly to the next thing. Well, you listen to it such a lot when you're making it in, in a way you've you've really, you know, by the time you finished it, you've listened to it more than almost your most obsessive fans going to hear it afterwards. So, so you, you, do, you are ready to move on. Absolutely. Yes. Because going just two years ago when PJ, PJ Harvey did that album, The Hope of Six Demolition Project. I mean, was that the one that she recorded while there was an audience on at the same time? Yes, it was. Yeah, we did it at Somerset House as almost as an art installation so so audiences could come in for four 45 minute periods each day um we were behind a excuse me they built a a sort of a room within a room which had one-way glass so we couldn't see the audience or, or hear them but they could see and hear us but we did know what times they were going to be in but i have to say after the first couple of days when we were when we were quite aware of it we just kind of got on with it after that and it seemed like a perfectly normal way of of working in fact it was actually a good way because we've made a couple of rules like no looking no checking emails no looking at your phone during the when when the people are in and um and it just seemed to and we found that we would tend to not because we weren't doing it when because we'd stopped looking at our watches to see when people were coming in and out we just kind of stopped yeah, just stopped using computers and phones in uh, in a session, and really, that's the only session I've been on like that in in probably the last ten years, and it was it was pretty good actually. Yes, actually, that's a whole new subject, isn't it? Because actually, so there was a track on that album, um, "Community of Hope," which I think is one of the best songs that she's ever done which is just one of those ones i played endlessly when it first came out and i thought it was just genius actually so um yes i did enjoy that particular album a lot and and i saw quite a few i didn't see a live live but i saw you know the glastonbury and various other ones she did in russia and i thought they were just amazing performances great yeah excellent really really special and what would you you know having you know so many experience what would you say to your 18 year old self Oh, um, is I, I think if, certainly if my eighteen-year-old self could see me now, he would be a surprise because at eighteen, I, I, I fully expected to be a drummer in, in, in a band. That was that was what I was um, what I was holding out for. So he'd probably be surprised that I'd become a sort of producer and, and more well-known as a guitar player. But um, I, I think he would be um, I think he would be very very happy with the way. Um, we, we, yeah, I, I, I think he'd be pretty happy with the way things t- turned out. I, I'm he'd probably surprised to hear the music because I'm trying to think what I was listening to when I was 18, um, which would have been, I suppose, Talking Heads probably, mostly Talking Heads at that time. <laughs> they'd, they'd just come out and I was definitely into Talking Heads and XTC. I was into that kind of weird 
arty new wave stuff that was happening in the late 70s. That's fantastic. I just did an, I just did an interview with Colin Moulding, who's got a new uh, project with Terry Chambers called TCNI. And um, yeah, so they're very pleased. I think they've got a few live dates. Oh, right. Oh, excellent. I loved Terry Chambers' drumming. I thought it was, I never liked XTC after he left it. For me, it was, um, a re- yeah, it was a really important part of the band. Yes. I mean, but, but just going back, back to that previous question, I mean, what would you, you know, what would you say to any young kind of person starting out that you think, oh, that's a bit of a, a pitfall or that's a bit of a sort of tripwire? Um, there's, 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 no, there's no kind of... There's not much generic advice you you can give. You can talk. You can you can give advice on specific points. I think when th- when things come up, um, the the only thing that you, you the only obvious thing that you can say to people is you know play what play what you enjoy. And if you if you enjoy it, then probably somebody else is going to enjoy it. And if you stop enjoying it, then some, some something's probably wrong with it. Yes, I don't think there's probably any artist who's managed to go through the motions for that long. I mean, looking at your kind of website and you were looking at sort of the work you've done, obviously you've got most of it, but there are bands like the Sidleys that you, you obviously do you occasionally think, oh God, I should just tr- put that and update my website because there's more work that um, has been done than you've got got up. There, there, there is, there's quite, yeah, it, it probably... Probably all the stuff I did prior to hardly anything prior to PJ Harvey, I think, is on my website. Um, and that wasn't really a, that wasn't so much a deliberate thing as just uh, I'm, I'm not very good at um, as as the person that runs my website would 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 attest. I'm not very good at supplying information um, to things. To I know it hasn't got the my website doesn't have the my most current releases that have come out including my own album even which is which is really rather bad um so so, so yeah i probably do need to get the Sidleys and everybody else but i absolutely need to get what what's what's come out this year done done for and then, then i might do a, an archive one of all because there's there were a lot of records that i did you know small independent singles that came out in um you know in the between 1986 and um and 1995 you know so so there was almost 10 years of of indie sort of records that i was working on before um you know before the pj harvey stuff and probably the only things i've mentioned i mean i don't even know if the chesterfields are on my website i can't i can't remember i'm not sure if they are i don't think they are actually yeah um so so i i probably do need to do a you know that's that, that's going to be on my on my list of, on my very very long to do list um to, to to do to do an archive uh, page for all the um all, all the uh, indie stuff that I did in in the late eighties because yes. I think I think I've, I think I've got copies of everything so I think I I think I could put it together it's really just um making the time to do it yes because you've got the experimental pop band who were you know members of the brilliant corners but you haven't got that's, the, yeah you okay haven't, you haven't got because the brilliant corners bit, either yeah the pop band was a bit later so that's probably why see that was yeah that was more around sort of by that time probably i already had a bit of a website going so it was just a question of adding it as it came out yeah. um, rather than going back and finding finding old things yeah, because the brilliant corners probably aren't on there, are they? It's no, probably... they're not on there either. See, because it's quite lucky. Well, I say lucky, you obviously don't know, but that scene around Bristol and Yeovil was fantastic for kind of independent music because you also had the Sarah record label that began in the sort of late 80s. Yeah. And again, that created quite a scene. 
Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, obviously Martin from the Flatmates with Subway Records, which that was Bristol as well, Bristol based. Yes, you were, you were spoiled for choice. We were a bit sort of a, a desert in the east side of the country. <laughs> but have you ever been, because I know Tony Visconti did a book um, a few years ago. Um, have you ever been sort of tempted or thought about it occasionally? Think, God, that is one of those projects which would be quite nice. Because obviously, you know, you, you do have such an amazing sort of, yeah, a body of work and, and so many of these bands and, and obviously just having them catalogued is one thing, but the stories you must have and some of the sort of experience would be would make for a fascinating read. It, it, might, it might do, yeah, for, for, a, for a very particular audience, I would have thought. Um, I, actually, oddly, some a journalist a couple of years ago did, did ask me if she could do a book and we sort of did a couple of interviews and... Um, and that sort of fizzled out, of, ran out of steam, really, um, for, for no no reason other than we were both busy with other things. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's not something that I would instigate, I don't think. But um, but uh, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of always interested when people ask me to do things. Well, there are a lot of books, you know, by producers and musicians coming out, and and I know that it's. Um, yeah, yeah, and they, and they all have a different story to tell. And obviously, that you know, you know, I read the Tony Visconti one, which was which was really interesting because obviously I'm really interested in a lot of the records he's made, and um, and um, and I also read the Glyn Johns one as well, which which was interesting in, in a different way. But because um, he was the one who worked with the Clash, wasn't he? I think Glyn Johns. Did he do? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He did um, Combat Rock. Didn't yes. He? Was he the one who kind of would throw things around the studio and sort of? Um, no, that was the guy before, um, uh, whose name escapes me, um, who I think is dead now. Uh, yes. Uh, Chris Thomas. His name was Chris Thomas, wasn't it? Was it Chris Thomas who also did? Yeah. It might have been. But I just, yes, yeah. there was, there, there's been a few. There's Joe Boyd as well, who did a few things. Well, I say a few things. I mean, Pink, early Pink Floyd, Nick, Nick Drake and the Incredible Strong yeah. Band. Those really good, yeah, early 70s things. Mm. Yes, anyway, it's one of those projects. But hopefully, yeah, you should definitely get your website because I would love to. It was only, you know, like I've obviously come across you and your name and, and, and the work, but it was when I was just doing the Sidleys last week and doing this interview with Johnny Johnson and then sort of uh, doing a bit of research on some of the other stuff because it was actually quite... Tra- At the time, it was really tricky to track down, but now, you know, luckily things are about, though actually their work right. is still pretty difficult to find. I sort of saw your name as, as the producer for Sunshine Fuckery, I think it was called. That's right, yeah. And um, yes, and then she said it was her birthday and I, and I passed on... Um, your wishes, uh, good good wishes, birthday wishes, oh. and she was really touched because I think actually after the band she's kind of finished and gone back in to do whatever. But from the interview at the end, she said that she would love to sort of get back and do some more performing one day, but only in a very low key way because all these characters that you know, like Davy Woodward or Peter Aston from the Weather Prophets, they they're all sort of just strumming away in little pubs, making kind of occasionally doing albums, but keeping it yeah. very sort of DIY. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you know. I think that's you know they obviously still got something to say and still enjoy playing, and I, th- I think that think that's great. Yes, well, I think they you know they they probably I sort of realised because I had this theory actually that most people most of those bands last five years. They do a single. If John Peel picked it up and gave him a session, that was like the big one. That would mean that they'd get exposure outside their community and family and friends. They did the album. The the second album was often really tricky. If anybody ever did America, that was often the death of the band. Quite 
quite soon when they returned. Um, so anybody yeah. who lasts beyond that kind of five-year narrative, I think, is doing incredibly well. Mm, it's it's it is hard to last beyond that in a band. You know, it was a bit easier for me because because by the time things started happening for me, I'd already I'd already got a bit of a diversified sort of career in a way that I was already producing other people and doing my own things. And um, so it was ju it just, it just meant there was always something to do really. And, and, and also you kind of constantly meeting new people and, um, and learning new things. And um, uh, yeah, it's uh, that, that would be something that I probably would say to a young musician that was starting out is to, you know, to try and be as open-minded as possible. And um you know, and if you, if you if you're able to produce and you're able to, you know, write music and you're able to play a few different instruments, all those things are going to be very very handy if for, for, if you want to sustain any kind of long term career. Yes, well, I always remember hearing a story with about Michael Jackson being sort of obsessed with sort of watching Quincy Jones producing and became very interested in that side of it. And it sounded like when at the beginning of the interview when you were talking about hanging out after what you know when everyone else went to the pub, you wanted to be kind of in the control room seeing how it all mm. worked. Those kind of early kind of uh, interests probably um, were incredibly valuable, basically. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and also, I mean, just lastly, I mean, working with, you know, PJ Harvey, obviously her as a solo artist, is it kind of, would you say sometimes easier where you can bring musicians in or drop musicians if you feel like you need to go into a different area than being in a band where you are slightly stuck with a band until you all sort of have a massive argument in the van? <laughs> um, it's the, there, there are, pros and cons for for sort of both both ways actually obviously obviously when you're working with a solo artist and bringing musicians in then you can you can cherry pick you know and get in a particular person to do a specific thing that they happen to be really good at that you feel might work on a particular song and and obviously you 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 can just drop people if it's not sounding right and there's nobody you know, sitting in the back of the room thinking, oh, I'm not, this is my, in my band and I'm not even on the record. And so, so you don't have any of those sort of political worries. Um, but the thing about recording a band, you know, the positives about recording a band is that they're usually kind of more up together and they know what they're doing when you come in, when you arrive at the studio. So it's possible to make a record much more in a much more live setting, which can, you know, sometimes more exciting and is frequently a lot faster. So, if you've got a relatively small budget in which to sort of turn the record around, then recording with a live band is 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 actually a really good way to go. Yes, because I sort of I realised that one of the things that Bowie was so good at was when I suppose when he just wanted a change, he was able to sort of bring in some amazing musicians. And there's his last album where he brought in the Donny McClaskin band, you know, the jazz band. Again, yeah. you know, that was kind of obviously it's you know things happened after that but you know it was kind of genius in a way just because of what he was trying to create on that last album absolutely yeah absolutely yeah it, it, it's great to have that freedom for sure yes indeed we love a bit of freedom here on the c86 show anyway that is the the end of the interview with john Parrish. a huge thank you to the musician, songwriter, composer and record producer. Um, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, even Instagram. Check me out um, on my social media platforms. You can do that on C86 Show. I will be there. C86 Show. And um, 
Yes, keep it positive and groovy, otherwise don't bother. And also, all the shows have been pod, uh, podcasts, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. So again, yes, three years of interviewing indie bands from that golden decade and a few extra bonus ones in there. But anyway, I'm going to leave you with another track to say goodbye, which I do enjoy. Um, this is actually going to be The Sidleys and the track that... Uh, I'd been talking about with John at the very beginning. This is um, one that he produced back in the, I don't know what year it is actually, probably 85, let's go for that. This is the Sidleys and the track called Sunshine Fuggery. It's a classic, features the one and only Johnny Johnson on vocals. She was and is still a legend in my heart. Anyway, this has been David Esau. Have a great week. Thing about you. I've got a bit of a thing about you.